Ittelasikam hamsam vilasat makam. Audariakya sudhama sevagathanam visam bhakti param. Yatsna yukti vichakshanat vagabiro. Vaisista satya sara. Vandeham tripurarinamakayatim si bhakti brandanam. Vande si Krishna Chaitanya Nityananda Saharito Gauradaya Pushpavanta Chitra Sando Tamonada Vande Ham Sri Ram Krishna Abhaya Charanasako Sukhara Paramananda Sundara Subalapriya Aho Bhagyam Aho Bhagyam Nanda Gopabrachokasham Yan Mitram Baramanandam Purnabram Hasanathanam He Krishna Karuna Sindhu Dinavandu Jagatpate Gopesha Vapeka Kanta Radha Kanta Namustute Tapta Kanjanagorangi Radhe Vrindavaneshwari Prishabhanu Sute Devi Pranamami Hari Priye. All right, so welcome everybody. Welcome uh, Kaliyuka Bhavana, Govinda Mohini, Kishore Krishna, Bhavandas, Sakirati and Sham, Sarada and Brajhari. And um, during the first class I gave on the series, um, one devotee asked, like, like, what's the need for all this psychological stuff and all this uh, kind of like related stuff to bhakti instead of talking about bhakti itself? Like, I don't know, maybe some people felt a little cheated that the, the title is called The Intentional Sadhaka, focusing on making progress. But instead, I was talking about all this psychological stuff. And she was saying like, well, we're focusing so much on ourselves. Shouldn't we focus on service and focus on Krishna? And that's a fair question. But to answer it in a way that really, I think, brings the point home, I would like to tell you a little story about the British cycling team in the beginning of the 21st century. And, you know, bear with me. Sounds weird, but it's a pretty cool story. So in 2003... Um, this guy, Dave Brailsford, was um, hired to be the new performance director of the British cycling team. And the team had had a pretty rough patch for the last 100 years. Um, they had won, I think, one gold medal in that 100 years, Olympic gold medal. And they hadn't won the biggest race in the world, cycling race called Tour de France, once in 100, 110 years, something like that. So this Brailsford guy, instead of focusing on the muscle training and the, you know all this, whatever relates directly to cycling, he took this different approach. And he called it the, the aggregation of marginal gains. And his idea was that if he can find a bunch of things in the conditions of the, of the cyclists that he could improve by 1%, that would aggregate to like massive gains in terms of uh results and so then he started um looking at the looking at these different aspects whatever anything related to the the cycling team's performance not directly the cycling necessarily but everything related to it 
And so they started with the obvious ones like focusing on the diet, you know, focusing on the outfits that they were wearing so that they'd be as aerodynamic as possible. They focused, and then they got, got a little deeper into stuff that you might not think at first, like their the cyclists uh, like mattresses and pillows so that they would rest better and their you know performance would be better because they'd be better rested. And then they even hired this uh, surgeon to show the cyclists how, how to properly wash your hands so that they would minimize the, the chance of getting sick, which would affect their performance. And they went so far with this extreme focus on the conditions and environment that they even painted the insides of the, the tour truck white so that they could detect any like little speck of dust that might affect the performance of the bicycles themselves. And uh, nobody was expecting that the results would come as fast as they did, because only five years later in the Beijing Olympics, the British team won like 60% of the gold medals. After in a hundred years, they had won one gold medal. So 60% of the gold medals. And a few years later, they started winning Tour de France's. And the, so they won at one, there was a streak that they won um, five Tour de France's out of six, which was, I think no other country might've never done that before. It was unprecedented. And so it was all because of that new uh, performance director who had this kind of unusual um, approach. And so how does this relate to my classes then? Or the, or the, especially the, or the series, or the class that I'm going to give today. Well, it's kind of like bhakti is kind of like cycling, right? And so we are performing at the peak level of our uh, car, Hopefully, that's the ideal. That we're we're doing as much as we can, whatever our car allows us to engage in. But we're also sadhakas in an environment, and so the conditions that we perform. Sadhana, you could even say our minds and bodies are the conditions that, that this sadhana is performed, this bhakti is performed. So if we look at the conditions, excuse me, after we've made it clear that we are performing at the peak of our adhikar, then we can actually enhance, so-called enhance, very rajasic you know, speech here, but we can enhance our devotion by just focusing on the, um, on the conditions. So really, I would say that what I'm trying to uh, do here is this kind of like a next level approach that after we've heard all the Siddhanta and after we've tried to, you know, uh, do sadhana at the peak level that we can, then this is the next, this is kind of like the, the advanced tactic of trying to make more progress. And it, it's really like kind of like a Madhyamade car thing. It's like you try to use your full intelligence and whatever your capability is of being intentional and having that goal of making more progress, and then you look at everything in your life, not just like, okay, Sir Prabhupada says, you know, chant 16 rounds, or Guru Maharaj says, you know, whatever, you know, whatever the direct instructions are, like, okay, that's great. Like, we have to learn to follow the direct instructions. But then the Madhyam, when we start approaching the Madhyam stage, is like, then we got to start using our own head in every possible way that we can to make more progress and also um, try to integrate that, that part of ourselves that is the embodied being in the world with a devotee, like trying to start bringing those things together. So that's, I would say it's pretty necessary to start focusing, focusing on, our, on, on ourselves 
but it's always in the context of making more progress. And, and that idea really nicely leads to, so like in the last class, uh, the third class, we were talking about the, if you guys remember the quadrant two lifestyle, which was this idea of like focusing on the important stuff that's not urgent, that has this great like long-term benefit. And so, so today we're gonna be talking about the kind of like the small gains as in the cycling metaphor or the example the small gains in our own environment, which we really get by, by habits. So we're focusing on like how to form good habits that support our core values and, and devotion and how to get rid of the things that, that come in the way that like makes us sluggish or makes us not practice as well as we could given our car. And basically it's the principle of Anukul pratikul, whatever is favorable for bhakti, we embrace that. Whatever is unfavorable, we reject that. So this kind of like taking that pratikul anukul idea to the more kind of uh, nitty gritty level, you could say, like the more detailed level in our environment like that. And of course, it's not only the nitty gritty. This is also what I'm going to be talking about, about habit formation and so on. It also relates to the most core practices like chanting, for example. And I'm going to use a lot of examples about chanting and how to use these different techniques. So just a quick uh, intro. A lot of what I'm going to be talking about is based on this book called The Atomic Habits. It came out a few years ago, and it's really brilliant in the way it breaks down what habit is and how to take advantage of the kind of like the structure of, of any behavior or habit that humans have. And with that, let's we'll just like jump straight into it. And um, if you think about habits, the one one way you could talk about habits is that it's it's this continuous thing we do over and over again that we is automated, and it's it's basically a form of problem solving. Like we have a problem, say like you know we need as human bodied human humans human beings we need water. So then the problem is we need to drink water. And the habit that we create around that is that we drink anytime we feel thirsty. So like we create all these habits, the brain is like constantly scanning things of how to automate and how to turn something into a habit that's necessary for us or that's pleasurable for us. So that's really like habit in a, in a nutshell. And in a lot of ways, habits are this like compound interest. Good habits are a compound interest of, of self-improvement because the way it works is it, the habits seem like almost nothing in the day-to-day -day when you do them. Like it's just like almost, it feels kind of inconsequential. But the way that compound interest works, if you've ever had a mortgage, you know how it works. It's kind of shocking. It builds up on itself. Well, let's take another example. Like if you put money in the bank, since we're talking about good habits at this point, and then it starts, the interest starts growing. The way it compounds is it looks like nothing at first. If you look at a, look at a, graph, uh, a graph of compound interest, it's kind of flat. And then all of a sudden there's this curve and starts going up. So habits are very much like that. If you think about exercise or chanting or whatever, it seems like flat at first. And that's why it's difficult to maintain a good habit in the beginning, because we'll be talking about it more, but Good habits, a lot of time, you don't get the reward right away. It's like delayed. The things that are actually good for you, a lot of times the reward is delayed. And that's what is difficult about 
beginning good habits because it seems flat and there's no rewards. Like, why am I doing this? But to give you an example of how these things compound, um, think about the situation. You decide to chant one round more every day. Say whatever you chant, just add one round to, to your daily chanting. And so now I want to ask, you can type it in the chat. Don't calculate it. Just guess it, whatever comes in the top of your head. Guess how many hours in a year you'll be chanting if you only add one round a day. How much is that extra chanting in hours? Just type it quickly up. Don't think, don't count, don't cheat. Just post it in the chat. How many hours will you be chanting extra? Oh, wow. <laughs> so Kishore is saying 1,500, Sakirati 300, Sarada 400, Greg said 20. Oh, he's chanting slowly. Yeah, you got to chant pretty slowly to get 300 hours. <laughs> oh, Kishore was thinking of minutes. So, okay, that's one thing. I'll, I'll remember what you guys said. And now think about, okay, whatever, however many hours you do in a year, don't calculate, but just guess how many hours do you end up chanting extra if you chant one extra round a day and you chant for it? Okay, let's say you live for another 40 years, you know, fingers crossed. So how many hours will you chant in those 40 years with that extra hours? Type it up real quick. Greg says 40 days. Sakharati says... 10,000, Kishore says 10,000 hours, Sakharati says 12,000 hours. Well, okay, so for a year, one extra round means 40 extra hours of chanting. In one year, you'll be chanting a whole work week of Harinam, just from like about six and a half minutes extra in one day. And for 40 years, for the rest of your life, if you're old like me, it's, it's 90,000 hours, 90,000 hours of extra chanting from chanting one round extra a day, which means it's, I think it's about nine, uh, nine months of straight chanting of like eight hour days, normal work week. So like, this is what compounding, what, what, how amazing it is, like how, when we have that, like when we stare at the immediate situation, it seems like, oh, nothing's happening. But I mean, look at your life, your whole lifespan, 90,000 hours of chanting from only six and a half minutes a day. I mean, doesn't that blow your mind? And then, but the, the, the thing to remember is that the same can be reversed. I mean, think about this. You only spent six extra minutes on social media doing something, some nonsense. That's 90,000 lost hours in, a in only half of a lifetime to something completely useless. I mean, I mean, like, so when you think of when you like put things in the bigger picture, you, you can really start appreciating how this intentionality that I've been talking about for the four classes, how it compounds. And like, it's easy to look at the right here, right now and be like, what's the use of this thing? But think about that, like if you can um, kind of engineer your environment so that you get an extra six minutes that you would use on something useless anyway, you take that and use it for chanting, you, it doesn't really acquire, require that, that much more adhikar, six and a half extra minutes, but I mean, the compound interest of that habit is massive, 90,000 hours of chanting. And um, 
with that in mind, then then we can start looking at like like let's try to really figure out how to actually stick to our good habits and how to like decide what habits to uh, to form and what are the bad habits that are taking us away from focusing on devotion. And um, I want to show you guys a habit since I love sharing screens. Let's share a screen here. Uh, oh, where is it? So here's a really useful thing of like actually breaking down what a habit is. And this, uh, the um, behavioral psychologists and researchers and stuff, they, uh, my understanding is that they break it down in this way. At least this is how the Atomic Habits uses, talks about um, habit. And so, and I know actually that uh, scientists do the same thing. So the idea is that you can break it to these four separate parts. And so there's, there's a cue, which I, I don't think that's a great word. I like to use the word trigger, but let's just use the cue. But think about a trigger when you hear the word cue. So the first thing that happens with any behavior or habit is there's some kind of a trigger that makes you think about a certain behavior. And in this context, actually, I've done some, um, let's see, how do I oh, new share? I've drawn a little bit of a small comic for you guys. So here's here's an example of the here. Okay, so a cue. There's a there's Bakta Igor, and he sees this massive bowl of of gulab jamuns, right? So that that vision of that bowl of gulab jamuns, that's that's a cue. That's a trigger. And then, of course, what gets triggered is a craving. So, so that cue triggers a craving or a desire for something. And so Bhakta Igor starts desiring the gulab jamuns. It, it's almost like the gulab jamuns are speaking to him, right? And he, he can't, you know, the saliva starts coming on the tongue like he can't help himself. And then... Well, of course, then follows the response, which means that you react to your craving. Uh, let's see here. You react to your craving, which is the response. So in the case of Bhakta Igor, he grabs the bowl and heads for the, the cleaning closet, right? Because the other devotees are, you know, around and they, you don't want to be a total pig in front of other devotees. So head for the cleaning closet. And so that's the response, your behavior, your, your effort in relation to your craving is the, the third phase of a habit. And then, of course, the last phase is the reward. So that, that's kind of like what you're looking for when you begin, begin a behavior. So Bhakta Igor is sitting in the, in the cleaning closet and popping those um, gulab jamuns one after another. You can see the belly is growing. So there's also consequences from, from this kind of craving. So that's like, so in this context, we think about once again, what a habit or behavior is, there's a cue or a trigger and you respond to that trigger or what comes automatically from the trigger is craving. And then from that craving, you either respond by acting on it or in the case of a bad habit, you cut it off there by using your, um, what's the word? Um, restrained to not act on it but normally it goes from from the craving you respond to the craving and you act and then you get a reward reward from acting right so 
So let's get back to this thing here. And so um, the way to build strong habits is, this is the brilliance of this book, this, this uh, Atomic Habits, is that you focus on each one of those three or four aspects of, of a habit, and you try to optimize them so that it, it creates, it makes the habit formation as easy as possible. So basically what it would mean is uh, the trigger, if you want to start or maintain a good habit, you make the trigger or the cue as obvious as possible. So say, for example, if you want to read the Bhagavatam, you want to read more, right? So you place the Bhagavatam on your pillow in the morning so that when you go to bed in the evening, the cue for reading is very obvious, right? So, okay, the number one rule kind of, excuse me, <clears throat> for good habits is first make the cue obvious or make the trigger obvious so that you, you know, that something goes off in your brain. And then the, the craving that comes from the cue, make that craving as strong and attractive or make the habit as attractive as possible so that the craving is as strong as possible because the craving is really a desire. Uh, it's driven by desire. Our behavior is driven by desire. And we'll talk about that a little later, but so try to maximize the desire that is that what the great craving is. So try to crave as strongly as possible is the second rule of creating good uh, habits. And then make the response or the effort effort to to do the habit as easy as possible. Whatever you can whatever you can think of doing to make it easier, make it as easy as possible so that you will keep doing it. And then the final fourth rule is to make the reward as satisfying as you can. So this is the brilliance of this atomic habit system. I'm, I'm going to go over once again because there's a lot of new terms and stuff. So the idea is you make the cue as obvious as you can or the trigger as obvious as you can. And then you make, make it as at attractive as you can so that we crave it the maximum amount, which makes us behave more readily when we crave it more. And then make the response or effort as easy as possible. And then make the reward as satisfying as possible. And then with bad habits, you just invert the whole thing. So you make the cue uh, uh, what would be the word? Like make the cue non, like just make it disappear, make it invisible. Yeah, that's the word. Make the cue invisible, very important, so that the whole process doesn't even trigger because you don't have a cue to trigger it. And then make the the craving, make it make the habit like unattractive. We'll talk about how to do that later on. And then make the effort or the response as hard as possible make it difficult for you to actually get the reward and then make the reward as unsatisfying as possible. So this is going to take some engineering to actually do this, but we'll talk about that too. So we'll start with the first rule, which is make the cue obvious. And the most common cues or triggers for behavior is our time and location. And, um, this can be, there's a really cool trick that you can use to, if you want to create a new habit, like say like you want to start chanting then one, one extra round to get those 90,000 extra hours of chanting. Um, so state, even in writing, even better, state the time and location you're going to start doing that one extra round and do it every day at the same time in the same location if possible. 
And this somehow, there's all this research about this, how much this, it's called an implementation, uh, implementation, intention, uh, implementation intention is the word that the researchers use for it. So you have this like, you have an intent to implement this habit at a certain time in a certain location, it greatly uh, uh, um, increases the possibility or the chance that you will actually stick to it. And I'll give you a quick example. I wanted to write a book for years, this like spiritual memoir about leaving Finland and, and my life in the ashram. And I tried for years and I could not get it going. It was this massive thing, really, really hard to do. And then finally I found this really good writing coach and she said, you have to do it every day and you have to give yourself a certain amount that you do every day. So then I decided, okay, fine. I, I was so frustrated with it. Three or four years wasted, you know, couldn't get it done going. So then finally I decided, okay, I'm going to write every morning after I've chanted my rounds for one hour. And it took me two and a half months to finish my first draft, which was like 70,000, 71,000 words. And I, I couldn't believe it when I wrote those last words, like that it's that easy to, to get something done when you set a time and location and you give yourself a certain chunk that you have to do every time. So this is extremely useful for starting new habits. Of course, my mistake was that I took way too big of a chunk at right away, like writing for an hour when you're not used to writing was too much for me, but somehow I got it done. But anyway, we'll talk about that also later, how it's much better to start with very small chunks and then increase, but not go backwards. So that's one, one idea in terms of making the cue obvious. So you, you set the cue uh, time and location, you kind of have it, inhabit it in your time and space. And so then it's obvious. And one really important thing about this cue is that you have to design your environment for, for maximum positive cues. I mean, it's extremely important. And this is, of course, relates directly to Gaudiya Vaishnavism. That's always talking about avoiding uh, non-devotee association and associating with devotees. I mean, this, this is what, it, what big, a big part of this is. You try to avoid the cues of doing the, the things that don't enhance your bhakti. And you try to fill your environment with cues for the right kind of behavior like devotion uh, whatever it is like that's that's it's so extremely crucial um and one idea just in the day-to-day -day idea about this is that try to kind of like allocate different areas for different behaviors in your house because what happens very easily this is also based on brain chemistry and all this like scientific stuff they've found out is that we associate the context with a behavior. So what happens is the context, context actually becomes the cue. So for example, if you're used to sitting in, in a chair and if you like watch a lot of Netflix or like browse your phone in that same spot a lot, you don't wanna chant in that same spot because then your mind keeps going to the, the pleasurable activities that you're doing instead. So think about that's one like practical trick of trying to kind of separate your house a little bit into different areas. And it's really, really conducive to have a separate room or space for devotional activities, like a little temple room or a little like a, even closet or something like that. Because then that's an automatic cue, like, okay, now I'm doing spiritual stuff. Um, and then I'll quickly talk about the inversion of making the cues obvious is that making them invisible. And the, really quickly, um, 
really interesting thing happened in the early 70s. Uh, they found out, the government found out that I think it was about 20% of the active service members in Vietnam were heroin addicts. And like 30 or 40% had tried heroin in Vietnam. And so um, they freaked out about it. But when a huge, extremely surprising thing happened, they found out also that when the service members who are heroin addicts come back to the States from the war, it was something like 90% of them got clean, which is the exact inversion of if in the US a uh, uh, heroin addict goes to rehab, it's about 90% chance that they relapse when they come back home. So this completely upended the idea of uh, understanding of, of addiction that people had at that time in the 70s, because they thought that it's just based on the substance and whatnot. But th this finding really, really highlighted how the environment is extremely important for humans and how much it changes us, our behavior. So like, if you know that certain environments uh, aggregate or like, uh, what's the word? Um, kind of create or make you act in a bad way. Just don't go there, you know? Like, like say like alcoholics, they, the recovering alcoholics, they never go to bars or even parties that has alcohol in it because that's a very negative cue for them. And they just know, just to avoid the cue, the whole domino effect won't start. So for devotees, you know, seek good environment. And then if you are in an environment that's not ideal, try to, in any way you can, kind of engineer your environment to be conducive for your spiritual life. Because really like self-control alone is a very short-term uh, strategy. You can do it sometimes, but they actually found out in these studies that the people who are really self-controlled, they are actually not that much better at controlling themselves per se, but they're they are much better at optimizing their environment. And so that is a really, really important thing for devotees. I can't like emphasize that enough. My, Of course, I have very strong personal experience of that. I'll just give you a quick example. In the beginning of the year two, uh, 2020, I started doing these things that I, I call them blackouts. So I would uh, cut off all communication to even to most devotees. But what speak of like uh, uh, my non-devotee friends or my, my family or any kind of uh, non-devotional entertainment. So I was just in Audaria. I was completely isolated and I was only doing devotional activities. And it, it's, I mean, I was absolutely blown away by how much it affected the, the quality of my consciousness. I, my chanting went like through the roof in terms of quality. And like, I just, I became like a nicer person. I paid much more attention to my wife and my Guru Maharaj, the animals, everything. But it's hard because, you know, we have these certain needs, we have our car. So one thing I highly recommend, if you have a chance to test this kind of thing out, try it out, like isolate yourself with good company, uh, if possible, if you can isolate yourself, well, this is pretty much not, you know, most people can't do it. But anyway, if you can try to isolate yourself with the company of devotees who are more advanced than you are, that was the case with me. And, and then cut out every other association and see how it affects you. Like do a little experiment with yourself. And if you can deal, it's hard at first because you kind of feel these like withdrawals from all the nonsense that you like doing. But if you can deal with the withdrawals that take about a week or so, I, you'll be blown away. I, I, I can pretty much guarantee if you can deal with the, the austerity at first, the results are just amazing.
so that's a great example of how you can like practically actually see how the cues taking out the bad cues and just filling your environment environment with positive cues is uh, extremely useful. Okay, let's move on. I have a lot to go through here. I'm hopefully Kaliuka Bhavan. I'm not going too fast here, but um, I have a lot of material to go through, so I'm going to rush a little bit. Not rush, but you know, intentionally speed up. So the second law is make make the habit attractive so that you enhance the craving for the habit. But this it's really tricky here because good habits um, are almost always something that the, the gratification is delayed. Like, well, I mean, if you think about, think about devotional service, at least in the beginning, we know in our, with our intelligence that this is the right thing to do, but a lot of times we don't feel it. And that's why we don't do it. That's why we're not studying uh, steady in our sadhana. So like, it's very hard to have a strong craving if the reward is not immediate. And that's one of the cardinal rules of like behavior and habit formation in the material world is that the more immediate the, the reward is, the, the more likely it is that we will maintain a habit. Or it should be said, the more immediate and the more intense the reward is, the more likely it is that we're going to maintain a habit, right? But the tricky thing with so much of these good habits and these sattvic habits is that they don't feel so pleasant at first. And, and that's what separates us from animals is that animals just don't do stuff that they feel unpleasant, that, that they feel is unpleasant. Like we have, I have dogs and they, if they don't want to do something, they still do it. They don't think about the consequences, but we have the kind of intelligence that we can make ourselves push through the unpleasant stage because we know it's like the reward is there and we know it. So we, we do it nonetheless. And in the Gita, the terms are prayas and shreyas. So prayas is something that's pleasant in the moment, but actually turns out to be poison in the end. And shreyas is something that feels like poison in the beginning, possibly, but is actually good for us in the end. So these, that, that's like, and this is the constant balancing of the human existence. It's like, we know what to do, what's the right thing to do, but our immediate craving for rewards and pleasure just override that, that good intention. Um, so one trick, again, a practical tip, this might seem a little like, um, frivolous or something, but these actually like, when you think about just anything you can do to even make your sadhana a little better, here's one of those like 1% enhancements like that cycling coach did. So this, uh, one trick you can do is it's called the temptation bundling. And what that basically means is that um, you bundle something that you really like doing with something that you know you need to do. And there's a really funny example in that Atomic uh, Habits book. There's this one Scottish uh, engineering student, and he was pretty fat, right? Well, I don't know if that's PC to say. He was overweight, let's say, put it like that. And so, and he loved watching Netflix, which a lot of times they go hand in hand, right? But he, he, <laughs> figured out that well, what he did is, was he engineered his stationary bike so that the stationary bike was powering his computer. And so he could only watch Netflix when the stationary bike was going. And even if he still pedaled, pedaled, but he was pedaling too slow, Netflix would shut down. And so like, that's a brilliant uh, way of, of 
temptation bundling. You bundle the temptation with the thing you need to do. And let me show you something really uh, interesting here. Um, so a lot of this comes to dopamine, like our, like if you talk about it uh, just in terms of the body and the mind, how things work is a lot of our like desire to act, uh, not all of it, but a good chunk of it is triggered or like put in action by this one new neurotransmitter or some kind of hormone called dopamine. And here's a, are you guys seeing the dopamine uh, thing? Okay, good. So this shows you how um, the, the spikes are dopamine spikes, right? And at the top, you can see the cue, craving, effort, and uh, reward. So you can see the first thing shows like when, you, when you're not familiar with the behavior, the dopamine comes in the reward section. Section Like say, like you've never tasted gulab jamuns. Bakta Igor has never tasted gulab jamuns. So somebody gives him a gulab jamun, he's like blown away by it, right? So the dopamine spike is in the end. But the second time, okay, Bakta Igor knows what gulab jamuns is, and then he sees the, the uh, gulab jamuns on top of the fridge, that's when his dopamine spikes in the anticipation of the reward and not as much the reward itself. So the craving part is actually where the sense of the, the pleasure and the desire to behave comes. And that is, that's the reason why this temptation bundling can be really powerful because you basically write that dopamine spike that comes from anticipation, you piggy, piggyback on that with the thing that you need to do, right? I mean, it's pretty brilliant actually. So if you think about the, well, let's say, okay, you, you really wanna chant that extra round, but you don't feel like it. So, and you like eating desserts or whatever. So then you bundle those two, two things in a way that you, you only have dessert after you chanted that extra round. So the anticipation of the, the dessert makes you, puts dopamine in your blood, which makes you more willing to act. And then you use that dopamine to actually chant. So there's, you know, I, I've never tried this, but uh, it does make a lot of sense. I might definitely try it with something. It sounds like a fun thing to do. Um, mm, let's see here. Another important point about how to make the craving stronger is to focus, and, and Sarada made this point last week, which was an excellent point. Focus on the kind of sadhana and seva that you naturally like to do, because then the reward is stronger, which means that when you come around to starting that or doing that habit or particular behavior again, the craving is stronger because you automatically like that, that thing. So I think it's very important for devotees to really like think about like, when are you kind of in that flow state when you do service? Like for me, it's video editing and publishing in general, but especially video editing. I've been working on these videos of my Guru Maharaj and I just, I get into this state like three and a half, four hours, just like fly by. I'm like, whoa, is it really time to have lunch already? And so that for me, that there's a strong craving for doing videos because it's so rewarding for me. So like, think about that in your own lives. If there's any kind of service that especially entices you and gives you a strong craving, and that's one strong way of like enhancing your habit of doing that service or sadhana. Now, another trick to, to make that craving stronger is to use peer pressure to make behaviors more attractive. And this also relates to what I said earlier about keeping the association of devotees. Because humans are like so strongly herd animals that 
whatever is the normal behavior and the kind of like behavior that is uh what's the word rewarded in a society or a culture we start craving for that because we want the perks that come from that behavior and like we we are always like scanning who uh let's see here somebody posted something okay Sarah says the psychological term is association for example, when you associate the feelings of love with your sadhana. Okay, yeah, so association. So the same idea as the temptation bundling is you associate positive things with the things that you know you need to do. And this thing about the peer pressure. Um, so you use the, the groups or like you use the, the, the tendency to want to conform to the group and to be to belong to a group you use that to make make the uh craving make the habit like more enticing basically and again it comes down to sadhu sangha and avoiding bad association and uh we particularly imitate three social groups we uh, um imitate the ones that are close to us like our friends and family and then we imitate like kind of like the overall mood in society. And then we really imitate people who have power and status, uh, who are like powerful, who have influence. So you can think about how to associate yourself with the right groups. So, or the right environment. So you get the maximum benefit of having the kind of social environment that pushes you to crave for the right kind of behaviors. And then, of course, the inversion is that you avoid the groups and culture and societies that um, that reward bad behavior and and don't respect or give value to the good behaviors that we deem good, like devotional service and, and sattvic lifestyle and whatever. Um, yeah, I think that's all I wanted to say about that. Um, one quick example, I remember when I got, went to Vrindavan for the first time, it blew my mind to be in a whole society where the stuff that had made me like a freak in the West, wearing these weird like robes and stuff, all of a sudden that was like the height, you know, like renunciates are kind of like the, the height of society in a, in a deeply devotional culture or deeply spiritual culture. And I was getting all this like appreciation for wearing saffron. It was like, it just blew my mind that like, what a difference it made uh, in terms of being accepted socially for the thing that you truly love and want to do the most in life. It was, it was a really like a life-changing experience for me. And to realize that this, that whatever we have going on here in the West, that's just one culture. Like since we're born in it, we live in it. We tend to think like that's the all in all and everything has to be viewed through our Western culture. That's just totally not true. We have to get out of that mindset of like comparing everything we do to the so-called accepted norms of the Western society. There's so many bad tendencies in the West. There's plenty of good things too. But oh man, if we talk about devotion, and, and dedicating our lives to a higher purpose and especially a transcendental purpose. The West is probably one of the worst places to live in in the whole world. Because that's what, what a lot of the uh, like intellectual um, 
where the West is going intellectually, I mean, there's many strands, but if you look at science and philosophy, it's very clear that what they're doing is they're trying to cut off the spiritual or transcendental aspect, the, the metaphysical aspect from life altogether. They think it's bogus, and they want to cut it off. And for us, that's like the worst possible thing that could happen. Because for us, you cut off the whole life. You cut, cut our throats, you know, like our heads, that, our hearts. That's, that's really what we live for as devotees. And so to be in, an, in a culture that says that that's just superstition and craziness, it's very, very unconducive for devotion. But of course, there are pockets within the Western culture, since it's so splintered, that we can focus on the yoga scene. It, well, obviously, as long as there's a big enough devotee community, that's ideal. As long as the devotees are, you know, like-minded, which is very important as well. But so anyway, we can pick the right environment because that's one of the huge benefits of a, like a postmodern society is that it's so splintered that you can kind of find your little niche. But we have to be very careful about the overall influence of the Western way of thinking where the transcendental aspect of life is completely cut out. All right, moving on to the third rule, which is make the um, habit as easy as possible. And now this is not going to be easy, <laughs> pun intended, when we talk about uh, spiritual habits or any kind of habit that's really good for us in the long term, but it's a little painful in the short term because that's not easy. Like when you don't have, when the four aspects of a habit or a behavior are not strong, it's very hard to follow through. If the cue is not strong enough, you don't end up starting it. If the craving is not strong enough, you don't end up following through. If, if the response or the effort is too difficult, you don't wanna deal with it. And then if the reward, if it's not rewarding, then you won't repeat it anymore. So then, then how do we make these difficult habits easy? And really the, the most simple answer is you got to break them down to very, very, you start with extremely small bits. For example, there's this example in that book of this one guy who lost like over a hundred pounds by going to the gym five minutes at a time. Oh, he started it like that. So that's brilliant. Like, like it can feel really overwhelming to go to the gym. You know, the whole atmosphere is weird and there's all these like meatheads and whatever. And you're not in, in shape and you don't feel like doing all this huge exertion stuff. So then what he did was he just went to the gym, pumped something for five minutes and went home. I mean, it sounds ridiculous. Like, of course, you're going to think like, what's that going to do? That's not going to do anything. Right. But he in, in a few years, he lost over 100 pounds because what happened was he kept going for five minutes, five minutes, five minutes, five over and over again. And he encoded that behavior in his brain which that's how behavior works. It actually creates new neural pathways in our brain. And so he encoded that habit itself instead of the, the, the uh, goal of it or the result of it. So he encoded the habit itself, the process into his brain. And once it was encoded, then he started following up on it. Then he was like, well, I come here every day for five minutes. Like I might as well stay for 10 minutes. So he stayed for 10 minutes and it was like, maybe a week or two, I don't know how long it took, but then he was like, maybe I should stay for 15 or 20, 25, 30, you know? So that's really how you make a difficult habit easy. You start, there's this thing called the two minute rule. You only do it for two minutes. So, okay, so if we break this down to like chanting, like if you, because that, you know, chanting after all is like the, the main activity of, of Gaudiya Vaishnavas. So if you really want to chant more, 
don't even try to chant a full extra round. Chant for two minutes more and actually stop when you still feel like chanting, that you don't go past the due date, like when you start feeling like you just want to throw your beads on the wall, you know, like, you know, and whatever. So chant like 10 more names or 20 more names or two minutes and then stop and do that as long as it takes for you to get used to the idea that you are chanting a little bit over what you actually normally chant. And then when you when that's encoded in your brain, then you just add a little bit at a time. There's no rule to say that we can't stop in the middle of the round. We have this kind of like innate thing as devotees, like I cannot stop chanting in the middle of the round. But if that actually gives you more bhakti, it makes you practice more, then, you know, why just do it, you know? Um, And then in this context also, to make it as easy as possible, it's the same thing applies as what applied to making the cues as obvious as possible, which is that you, you design your environment so that there's the minimum amount of friction for you to, to do your sadhana. So for example, if you wanna chant that extra round, but you have a very loud spouse in the house or you have very loud kids or something, then to, to design the most friction-free environment, you do not want to chant when they're at home. So maybe chant in the morning when they are sleeping or like find a time uh, when you can chant when they're not disturbing you and making creating more friction for you to keep up the habit. So in other words, to make a habit easier, uh, eliminate as much friction from your environment as possible in terms of that, that behavior. Um, another important thing is, uh, we have to be careful when we try to start a new habit. There's, there's two things really, when you start something, there's motion and action. And just quickly, what that means is motion is like when you like, for example, do research about the benefits of meditation, you can spend your lifetime just doing research about the benefits of meditation, all these different angles, how it's good for you and stuff, but you never end up meditating or chanting in our case. So that's motion. And it's really easy. And then action, of course, is the meditation or chanting itself. So it's very easy to kind of cheat yourself when you start a new habit that you're actually doing the habit by only doing the motion of the habit and not the actual action. So just a quick thing. Uh, be aware that you might try to cheat yourself that you're actually doing a new habit because it's easier, again, to do the motion rather than the action. Um, and so I guess uh, the one thing the takeaway from that one is that we should always have the question in mind, like, how can I design my environment in a way that it's the easiest, it's as easy as possible for me to do the right thing? How can I design my environment? Like, we don't have to just agree to our environment if there's anything in terms of what I was talking about two classes ago, the circle of influence and the circle of concern changing our immediate environment, a lot of it is actually in our circle of, uh, of influence. But changing the society, that's, forget about that, that's the circle of concern. But like, whatever you can change in your environment that you can, you know, you can make more conducive for your practice, do that. And then the inversion of this third rule, which was to make your habit easier or as easy as possible, the inversion is make a bad habit as hard as you can. So for example, 
Well, social media is a major, major bad habit for pretty much everybody in the world right now, almost. Whoever can get online, it can very quickly become a bad habit that gets in the way of what you actually want to do. So, for example, delete your social media accounts or do the blackouts that I mentioned that I do some months. I'm going to be doing it next month again because it's Kartik and I'm really looking forward to that. So delete the social media apps from your phone. Uh, if, you, if you watch too much Netflix, you know, you, I think you can ban certain websites on your laptop, just like ban that website and you can only unban it on Saturdays or something. Just like use your brain for like how you can make a bad habit as hard as possible, like increase the friction between getting the cue and the craving and then being able to get the reward, put the full friction between the, the craving and the reward. And that's the way you can slow down your, like if it gets harder to immediately get the reward, it'll definitely make you do less of that behavior. And the, the really awful thing about social media and Netflix and services like that is that they're engineered to be as easy as possible because they have boatloads of professional psychologists working on their in the corporate teams to make these products more addictive. And they know the easier it is, the more addictive it's going to be for you. Well, think about Netflix. You finish watching like one episode of series, it automatically throws you to the next episode why is it just because they want to be so nice to you you know that they they're such you know great people that they want to be nice to you no they want you to binge watch and they do all these things social media is a great example of the same idea they have these just quickly about social media they have these four phases of a habit honed down i mean they know everything about human behavior and how to exploit the weaknesses of our behavior so like every single thing like okay the cues in social media they make it so obvious like if you try to um stay away from social media but you don't deactivate your account they start sending you these emails your friend posted this and then sometimes they even sent these things you're somebody is missing you on facebook and the only reason they do that is because they are exploiting the certain weaknesses that we have as humans. So they try to give you cues that, so that the craving kicks in. And so when, then when they get you in the platform, they use the cravings in so many different ways to keep you hooked, right? So they, they, they have this specialized, uh, personalized marketing, for example. So they know from the, your online activity which things you're attracted to. And they start, they start putting that advertisement, which is they spent millions of dollars to make as enticing advertisements as possible because they want to blow up your craving. They... they because they want to offer you then the reward that they actually make money on. So they want to maximize the amount of craving that their products make you feel. And so they have this way of, of personalized uh, advertisement that they know from your behavior what triggers you. And then that's what they give you. They feed you those cues and, and which become cravings and they maximize the cravings by, by super, what's the term? They like super enhanced reality in terms of like uh like sex is a good example like we have this like natural innate tendency to want to reproduce so they 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 like exaggerate 
the cravings that get triggered by like super buff guys that are like unnatural, like these mutants. You think like, what, what's with that guy? But it triggers this thing in our like uh, uh, instinctual systems that we can't stop. And the, and the more exaggerated that cue is, the stronger the craving is. So you have these dudes that look like some like Hulk or something. And then you have these women who have like these breasts that are like actually like balloons. They don't, they're not like natural at all. Their hips are like just massive. And it's this exaggerated form of reality because the greater the exaggeration, the stronger the craving. So like it's, it's really good to be uh, aware of how they actually exploit our tendencies. And it's not really sinister in a way because capitalism works on the basis of, of maximizing profits. And so in a way that's just like, they're just practical, like they figure out how to maximize profits and they do it. But the, the consequences of that can be devastating for humans and they are actually. Uh, let's see, Sarada says here, something here. So maybe bad habits are the ones that tire you, but good habits are the ones that inspire you. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice way of looking at it. One way, one thing about that though, is like if you try to do too much of a good habit, it becomes tiring, right? So I think it, that statement, I think it has to be um, qualified with the fact that, that you can't do too much of a good thing. <laughs> Does that make sense? I mean, that you could take it both ways. You can never do too much of a good thing or you can't do too much of, of a good thing. Okay, Sarah says, yes, thank you. Uh, so anyway, I think that's enough about social media in terms of how they uh, exploit this natural human tendency of how our habit habituation works. But it's really like good to give, once you learn this structure of behavior or habits, Keep that in mind when you get triggered online or when you realize that you've been scrolling uh, scrolling Facebook for like 30 minutes without, you're, you were just going to check the time and then 30 minutes later, you're still staring at the phone and you somehow ended up on Facebook through, you know, Instagram and Snapchat and, you know, whatever. I don't even know what's out there. So like, think about these four, four parts of be, uh, behavior and habit when that happens to you. And think about how it was exploited. It's very, very useful to become aware of how you are being exploited. Because when you become aware of that, you can fight back. And then you can do these things that I've been talking about, how to counteract that and how to focus on the, the good habits. Okay, the fourth rule of good habits is make it satisfying, which of course relates to the reward. So this is also um, one thing that, especially with religion, when we don't have a whole lot of taste for, for religion or spirituality or God, it's really tricky. It can be very tricky because pleasure is actually what drives our behavior as embodied beings. We are completely driven by pleasure and desire. And the Gita is like so radical because of that, because it says, you know, it says like, Forget about all these dualities of pleasure and pain. Like you're constantly trying to run after pleasure and you know avoid pain. Forget about that and just you know surrender unto me. So like Krishna consciousness is kind of in the beginning at least. Of course, it becomes the most pleasurable thing in the world. Nothing compares to it when you actually have taste. But before you have taste, 
Krishna consciousness short circuits the way humans act as embodied beings, which is that we always seek for pleasure and we always try to avoid pain. And we have this like immediate brain, excuse me, that, uh, I mean, you can look at it from the evolutionary point of view, which would say that we grew up or we like evolved in an environment that was extremely immediate. And it was in our actual interest to, to have this immediate craving for pleasure. But now the world has become so much more complex and, and really delayed gratification is much more uh, useful for us than immediate gratification. So we kind of have this like, you could say we have this like um, prehistoric brain in this like modern world, which is a bad match in a lot of ways. And so then if you think about what religion has done traditionally to, to circumvent this problem that we're always looking for pleasure and that the hard things of like right, like virtue and especially the transcendental life, they don't give you, in the beginning, they don't give you that immediate pleasure that mostly drives human behavior. How do you drive human behavior towards a transcendental goal? Well, religion on the lowest level, what they do is they replace rewards with fear, right? So instead of you wanting something, you're actually afraid. And so instead of pleasure, you avoid pain and that motivates your behavior. So, uh, you know, hell is a great example. Like it motivates you to forego the reward because you don't want the negative consequence of a behavior. But the problem with that is if you like overemphasize fear, you get a little messed up in the head. <laughs> So, and, and that can be even worse for your, it can end up being even worse for your devotional life or spiritual life than just thinking like, well, I'll get some pleasure now. And then once I get over that desire, I'll try to focus on spiritual life. So in some ways, fear is an extremely strong motivator and you can replace the reward with fear. And then that makes you do the right thing. And then eventually get over that fear and get the actual reward of spiritual life. But uh, Unfortunately, if you think about the dark ages or something in Europe, they got stuck in the fear state. And I think they kind of lost sight of what the actual reward of spiritual life was. And they were just like afraid and like behaving based on fear at all times. And it got really messed up in so many ways. But so anyway, so we can think about ways to do it in a healthy way. How can we, if we're not getting the immediate reward in our spiritual practice, how can we get around the fact that mostly if you don't get a reward, you, you stop doing, doing a behavior or a habit? Um, one, well, really what it comes down to is it's really useful to feel immediately successful when you do, a, a you know, when you uh, repeat a habit, right? And so then the question is, how can I feel immediately successful when there's like a delayed gratification? And one way uh, of dealing with that would be this idea of immediate reinforcement, which means that you give yourself some kind of other reward for doing the right thing. So for example, if you have a problem with social media, and so you can make this pact with yourself, like every time you're about to pull your phone up and check social media, instead of doing that, you open up a, like a savings account and put a certain amount of money, let's say, say like five euros or five dollars or five colones, every time you have that urge, but you're able to fight against it. 
So you have a savings account that you can name like trip to Vrindavan or something like that's in line with your what you really want. And then you reward yourself for doing the right thing by giving you yourself a different reward that you get actually this pleasure immediately but it's not directly from the behavior itself but i guess association again is the word that um that sarada used uh so you associate yeah you you just use a different reward for a behavior that you wanna really turn into a strong habit and another way of doing that is i like this one it's um habit tracking and that also tracking your habits when you, you know you do the right thing and you have some kind of visual indication that you've done the right thing and you keep doing the right thing it's it's really actually gives you pleasure in the immediate so for example uh this famous famous american comedian jerry seinfeld uh he kept himself going with writing jokes every day by having a big calendar on the wall and he would mark an x every day he would cross out every day that he would write jokes and then it became a matter of pride for him that he wouldn't break the chain so that there would be no gaps in the in the x's in the wall so there's many ways of tracking your habits but the, just to have the visual cue <laughs> excuse me the visual cue that you've kept up with your um oh wow i've been sharing my screen here for 30 minutes <laughs> um that you have some kind of visual cue that you are actually making progress the sense the feeling of making progress is extremely re rewarding in itself so that's a very cool little practical trip like a uh, trick just come up with some way of tracking your progress with the new habit and make it visible so that the cue is obvious and with that i think i pretty much covered everything i wanted to uh cover oh one more thing about this idea of making the um the final part of of the the four rules of uh, of good habits is the inversion of the last rule of making it uh, satisfying is to try to make bad habits unsatisfying and that is for example you can use these things of there's this thing called the habit contract for example so you tell your wife okay let's sign this paper what i'm saying in the paper is if I spend more than 15 minutes on social media, if unless it's devotional, like, you know, if it has a real devotional purpose, if I spend 15 minutes or more on social media each to any given day, I'll give you, you know, make the stakes high. I'll give you a hundred dollars every time I do it, you know? And so th that way you can actually make the, the, behavior very unsatisfying or unrewarding because you lose so much by making and doing that behavior so that would be the inversion of the last rule of making your habits um, satisfying and with that i'm gonna end there and uh, i would like to ask if sarah has anything to add since since she is a professional i'd like to hear if she has any comments or points to make Hare Krishna. Hare yeah, of course, you know, we can go into town with the biological aspect of it and everything we can. And you can also ask the um, our devotee, I think he's called Vittoro, the Vittoria, um, uh, yeah. he would be able to tell you lots of stuff about, yeah. you know, the psychology behind it. But since um, 
since we're looking at sadhana and back to yoga as well, um, so we're talking about the transcendental world. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult to merge the two. There mm. may be there may be some exceptions here to, you know, I'm I'm trying to think of any differences that, between the textbook and what we would think as devotees. Mm-hmm. But still, but still, despite looking at those differences, then try to see if we can merge them together. So what if there is there are cases with devotees <laughs> uh, when we're not actually thinking of our reward? I mean, we we you know, yeah, we're not we're not consciously thinking of our reward, are we? No, I guess we shouldn't be, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, like bhakti is its own reward. Yes. Bhakti then, for bhakti's sake, as the Guru Maharaj is always saying. Exactly. The way I look at that, though, is that is the idea. Like, how many of us can actually say that we could go on chanting 64 rounds without any taste? Yes. So, so like, you'd have to have God's grace as well. That's another <laughs> thing to right. give you these ideas. So you're not even actually having any intentions. You yeah. may, many devotees may have God's grace. Uh, you know, it's something may come to them and then they get the taste for that and they can look back, as you say, you can look back and see that, that that did work for you. Yeah. Yeah, really, like everything I've talked about for these four classes, that this, all this information is completely useless for somebody who actually has taste. Because yeah. all I'm trying to do is to think of any way that we as like, Anishta Bhajan Sadhakas can do to make more progress. So I think it's really, that's a really good point. Like the actual reward of devotion is reward. The process itself is the reward. And there's yes. nothing exterior or ulterior to, to that that we're looking for, which is yes. such a beautiful thing because then we're not like conditioned or we're not dependent on anything other than bhakti when we get to that point where the process itself is the reward. It's a beautiful thing. Yes, we think of it as a beautiful thing because it is more attractive than reading the textbooks. So therefore we we act as devotees first with thinking about the beauty and the the selfless desire, selfless desire, not intention. And then we can always refer back to the textbooks later (laughs) afterwards, if if you see what I mean. So we're starting from the Bhakti viewpoint not starting from an academic viewpoint even though i was an academic um i had i've been brought up by the bhagavad gita first (laughs) um so (laughs) which is interesting (laughs) but um and then i became i was wondering why i was becoming bored with the academic viewpoints and Mm -hmm. what was what was missing there was something missing from this so anyway um yeah, it's it's uh, so God's grace and the, the differences, um, and also as you're saying that to um, make it more attractive, you know, try to use as, as much as you can of the two brains, the logical mm-hmm. and the um, creative. Yeah. So you know, obviously, you can bring our biology into it by engaging, as you say, all the different, you know, uh, hearing, chanting, you know, so. For example, if I was with my bhajan, that I didn't even look for this bhajan; it just it was sent to me. <laughs> but anyway, so that was a, I was grateful. But I and now I'm involved in seeing, so I'm looking at Krishna's image, 
in the video, listening to the bhajan, I'm dancing to it, mm. I'm remembering. So I mean, there's lots of different, maybe sensual aspects, but still, if, if you can actually have, but all at the same time, it's actually, I think that the brain responds and the self respond, even if you look at it from a biological point of view, you've got lots of different, um, what do you call them, stimulus, stimulus from different places. Oh um, yeah, so I basically, are you saying that it's really useful for us since we're embodied to use our full embodiment to like yes. imbibe the lifestyle and the identity? Yeah, that really yes. makes a lot of sense. Use your whole body that. in your bhakti yeah. as yeah. much as possible. Yeah. And then and then it also, it's a, it, then a biofeedback happens what they call positive biofeedback yeah. happens. Can you quickly explain the biofeedback concept? Um, well, there are, the only way I can explain it, I suppose, um, biologically, really, uh, are examples of this. There are negative feedback mechanisms um, in the brain uh, or in the body. Um, so one example would be um, in the stress system. So you've got the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. That's the stress system there is an actual stress system in the body. So for so um, at the, the, so it begins in the, up here in the hypothalamus and it ends well in the blood, but the adrenals then release cortisol, the stress hormone. Mm. Um, so um, when you have a stressful situation and, and then the, the, the body is releasing lots of stress uh, hormone, cortisol, then the body knows this. It's the hypothalamus knows this, and therefore we cannot get too much cortisol in 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 the blood. It would just get out of control. So we need a a, a balancing mechanism, which is negative feedback. It's called negative feedback. Um, there's, so that's a negative feedback mechanism in the brain to to control biochemically mainly, and therefore control which therefore controls your brain and therefore your thinking and your perception of stress, et cetera. So, oh, wow. Um, that's, that's negative feedback. Positive feedback is, is actually necessary sometimes when you're actually giving birth. So the hormone oxytocin, I think whatever the, the mm -hmm. there's a hormone um, which is released when, when the womb is contracting, trying to give birth. And that hormone tells the brain to then keep going so you have a snowball effect, which is positive feedback. Right. So it moves um, basically. And yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So it's so that hormone gives rise to more contractions, and the mm. contractions gives rise to more ho hormone. So mm. they both snowball. And then then you have this other what they call biofeedback you can do yourself. So if you're feeling stressed, and then massage helps. So instead of controlling your emotions, trying to tell your emotions what to do, or try to tell yourself to do something, you do it from the other end. So you have a mm -hmm. massage, right? So that's a physical thing to do, uh, which then relaxes you. And then that changes your feelings and your emotions. That's, oh, yeah. another, that's another version of feedback, but that would, that would be in the psycho psychology books about feedback, but that, those right. are just general. But we can use all of this you know, ourselves, right. you know, as uh, it's nice that you bring up, you know, the general knowledge about it, but we use it constructively, you know, so. Yeah, <laughs> um, and, 
And one more thing is that I, I was I was also asking myself, looking at myself, because we have to observe ourselves. Okay, I have been alone. I've been in isolation, really, in a in a house empty empty house for five months. Um, and I've been thinking. Well, I I was praying to Lord Narasimha Day last winter to to you know the special prayer which says you know. Um, Please, Lord, don't grant me anything. If you have, if you want to, if you want to grant me anything, that's fine. If you don't want to, that's fine. But let me be at your feet and let me pray for not material, nothing material, just at your feet. Nothing, let these material desires fall away. But yes, of course, we can't just we can't just function with completely no material desires, <laughs> um, really, in reality. But it is an intention obviously, um, which is there, and we pray for it. Mm -hmm. um, and then I came here to England, and then I had all these material attachments. I was in this in a changed environment, as you're saying about the environment. Mm -hmm. My environment changed. So, you know, I, was, I, was, I had all of these, you know, feelings of material attachment again. And I thought, well, mm -hmm. I have to try and transform this and then have devotees here and transform this environment, try to transform it and create a devotional environment to then the bad habits of thinking this is a wonderful home and et cetera, those which should fall away. Mm. But maybe that wasn't to be either. Maybe it's not possible to transform this environment mm. at all. Yeah. And maybe my, my intentions praying in Canada were clashing with my intentions in this country, my home here. So we have to observe ourselves. Are our intentions clashing? And that is that yeah. why we have problems with doing something? Because yeah. we're actually having two different things, subconsciously uh, desires, but, but, but they seem to be coming against each other. Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's all I can say. There's, there's things Excellent. that come up. Excellent point. Excellent point. One thing I want to say in terms of what you just said, the last thing you said, Sridhar Sridhar said uh, once that that Admanivedan, which means self-surrender, self-surrender means introspection. And I thought that was such an interesting thing to say, because that's not normally how devotees think about self-surrender. And of course, I mean, it's not meant to say that it doesn't mean that we just surrender to God, but I think what he meant is exactly what you're saying, that we have to like be aware of how we have actually all these conflict, conflicting desires and to become aware of the desires that go against devotion. That's part of the process of self-surrender, because if you're not aware of all these tendencies that take you away from surrendering fully, you're never going to do it. So anyway, that was a really interesting thing you just said there. How you observe those conflicting desires, basically. Only I think only because I was in that isolated state. So oh, I think it's easier, that's it? yes, it's important. Yeah. So thank yeah. you <laughs> for yeah. confirming that. Thank Hare you so Krishna. Much for the, thank yeah. Hare Krishna. Thank yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I that's see Sakyarthi's hand hand is up here. <laughs> yeah, if we have still some time, I have a question. Sure. Um, like where do you find the motivation to do all the process you just explained super nicely. <laughs> and I think, you know, everyone was like, oh, wow, cool. But 
<laughs> who's gonna do something like tomorrow? i think it's kind of built into the four rules that i was talking about because if you try to i guess the, the the part where you have to exert some effort is like when you tweak your systems to follow those four rules like you make it obvious you make it uh, enticing you make it easy and and enjoyable so like to to tweak all that, it definitely takes effort but i guess the thing is the whole like premise of this book that i based a lot of the stuff on which i think is so important for people who are struggling with new uh, habits and try to kick old habits is that you have to start like really small and don't try to make this massive overhaul at once because change the really factual like permanent change it almost never comes from these like massive cold turkey moves uh so, so i think the thing is you don't need a whole lot of motivation if you know how to break down a habit and start really small so like like i mentioned chanting some extra rounds you just start with like chanting two minutes extra and and that's like that takes hardly any motivation right or if if that's too much for you start with like one minute just to get your brain encoded and you get used to the idea that okay if i normally chant like say like six rounds or eight rounds I'm just doing one minute over eight rounds and then you get used to that idea and then you like gradually add to it. I think it's really important to be patient because if you if you try to like bite too much and I do I, I'm like so bad at this I always go overboard but if you try to do too much at once um, you, it's not sustainable. Uh, basically you're just doing it out of greed you you want to be better than you are you want to be more than you are immediately you want these like immediate rewards it's just another form of that very kind of western problem of like wanting these immediate rewards and so that's i think what i would say just do it you know go go slowly but be steady so kamalaksha always tells me like when i joined the ashram he was always like slow and steady wins the race slow and steady wins the race <laughs> Well, I did prove him wrong on that one, but and I get much pleasure from it. I hope he's listening to this class at some point. <laughs> anyway, thanks for your question. That was a very good point. So I would say just start small and, and be steady. And then Greg is saying in the comments, Padmanabha Swami made a similar point yesterday oh, during his Istagosti session, describing our need for a combination of attention and acceptance in our daily sadhana. Yeah, that's a very nice point. Yeah acceptance and i would add to that uh, probably that's already baked into that answer but the the thing of like attention acceptance and patience you know we we have like the rest of eternity so although it feels like we're not making any progress we have plenty of time to do it right so we you know be generous with yourself but but know that you're moving forward like make sure that you're actually moving forward and that you don't just you're not stagnant but you're thinking that you're just because you're so called balanced that you're doing something in terms of devotion balance is really important but if you always have to lean forward just a little bit i think i made this point point in one of the classes that that's the um i guess what maharaj was saying yesterday it's kind of like the same principle that but it, balance if, if this is balance it's stagnation but if this is balance so that you have to step forward so that you stay in balance that's that's progress so there's i would say there's two kinds of balance and i see kishore's hand is up go for it kishore um i was thinking about this actually the past week when you were talking about um 
kind of observing when we enter into the flow state in our yeah. sadhana and trying to organize our life around that and um, trying to invoke those moments. And I was thinking about the flow state in relation to eagerness and patience, because as a sadhaka, you know, we're um, encouraged to try to cultivate those qualities. And usually it's spoken about in more of kind of a long-term um, disposition, but I was thinking how those two qualities seem to come into play um, together in like the moment of a flow state. Um, there seems to be both like an eagerness and a patience. Um, and it, I was reminded of it as you were speaking about the, the importance of trying to cultivate patience with all these things. And, um, but, but yeah, the ability to try to um, uh, create those flow state moments that I think that's very important to, to find that, that balance of eagerness and patience. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never thought of there being patience in, in the flow state because the way that I naturally seem to think about it is that when you're in the flow, you, you are like so present. The patience not only means that you're, you want something in the future, but you don't act on it because you know that you just have to be patient and wait. But when you're in the flow, uh, I've never thought of that you can be patient in the flow. I'd be interested to hear just quickly from you, like how, what is the, how do you see it? Like, how is the patience part, part of flow? I guess like the, the goal isn't, it doesn't have to be immediate. Like how you spoke about when you do video editing, four hours mm. will go by and you don't even realize. So there's kind of that, um, the patience of creating something you mm. know, that you you're willing to let it take as long as it needs to take because it's you know you're very um uh involved kind of in the beauty of it I guess. oh yeah i see yeah that's interesting i never thought of it like that that's an interesting point for sure yeah thank you for the comment uh, that that reminded me of something and that is that when you're in the flow state, that's what I was talking to Sarada about earlier is that, that the process becomes the reward. So like, that's why we really want to look for those, those uh, flow states in our sadhana, because that's when we're doing actual bhakti in a way that, that because bhakti is its own reward. When you're in the flow, that you really pay attention. You're just totally present in the moment. And, and the, the process is its own reward well it's almost 10 o'clock and i gotta skype with my parents at 10 so i think i get better sign off but thank you so much everybody for for joining especially for the ones who've been here for all the four classes and kali yuka bhavana probably thanks so much for doing that i'm sure excellent work with the translations and sakirati and sham being there every time and giving me uh Good tech support and everybody else who came thanks so much i'm gonna be giving some uh harinam chintamani classes in uh, december so i hope to see you all there in december go haribo guru nishta prabhu ki jai, jai. <laughs>